0: Your word, your ways, we would know you, we would, and we would know ourselves, you would expose our hearts and reveal to us um, what we're like, that we would see ourselves plainly in light of your holiness and goodness. And so, Father, I ask this morning that you would have your way with us and you would be here amongst us and you'd work in our hearts and minds and, and truly affect us. For we ask this in Christ, Amen. You know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid I'm afraid of us as a church going through the motions. I'm afraid of us having services week after week, coming here like we do each and every week and never really knowing the transforming power of God. Because that's possible. That's very possible. Because Often what I think happens is that it's very easy to think that as long as we believe the right things and we do the right things and we come here and everything's just right, you know, make sure everything's right. Is everything right? And and we try to just make sure we do everything right. And as long as we're doing everything right, then surely God is pleased, isn't he? Surely God is here in our midst, isn't he? Well, in a sense, yes, that's true. But I think what we what ends up happening, if we just come here week after week, and we think that this is it, we start to become a little bit distorted, really. We become distorted about what it really means to worship God, And as a result, I think we become convinced, at least I know I do, in my heart of hearts a lot of times, that watching the Seahawks win the Super Bowl is much more exciting than coming to worship God. Because, let's be honest, the Seahawks are pretty exciting. It's pretty exciting. And I get fired up and I get all excited about that. But just think for a moment with me. When was the last time you were worshiping God and it was so good, so amazing, so powerful, so palpable, His presence, that you would give up anything and everything in the world just to stay there forever. That everything else pales in comparison. That there's nothing else you'd rather be doing. I would... Venture to guess that most of us have not experienced the awesome presence of God in that way. And as a result, with full integrity of our hearts, we couldn't say that, you know what, a day within your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Sure, we say that, don't we? We have to say that. We're Christians, but do we truly believe that a day with God in his courts is better than a thousand elsewhere? And you know, a lot of times we can't, we have to say no. It's not true. And you know why it's not true? It's because we're not tasting and knowing and experiencing the presence and power of God in our midst. So that we could say with our whole hearts, That in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy. Man. We have to say, that's just not the case. Experientially. And don't get me wrong. I am not talking at all about salvation issues. I'm talking about fellowship communion issues. So there's a sense in which if we theologically want to parse this, there's nowhere that God isn't. He's here right now, but there's also another sense in which God's special presence is in places at times, in ways that it isn't at other places and times. Because I think if we're honest, I think we do often just feel like we go through the weekly ritual. Another call to worship, another few songs, another sermon, another time at the communion, another benediction, and another Sunday done. Just another one. And what scares me about not just our church, Redeemer Church, I think the church in America, is that it seems a lot of times like we're at the church in the time of Samuel. When the glory of the Lord had departed... And they didn't know it. They're just doing the regular stuff, offering their sacrifices, going through the rituals, and, and just doing it. But God was not with them or amongst them, and they didn't even realize it. Because, you know, after all, especially hey, look, you guys are good folks. We're faithful folks, we show up, you know, we we, we do what God wants. We're here, right? And you know what? The whole reason I've been talking about sin, repentance, and confession the past several weeks is because I'm becoming to realize, I'm becoming more and more troubled, bothered about just doing church, just going through the motions, and, and more and more I'm hungering and thirsting to see, God, I want you to show up in power. I want you more than anything else. Please just do something amongst us. And as I've wrestled with this, and as I've come to understand this more and more, and I, I'm seeing this connection between our willingness to humble ourselves before God Confess our sins to one another, and repent, and God showing up with his presence and power. There is an incredible connection here. And I want to begin this morning by asking a question. What is it that God cannot resist, and that he is eager to flood with his presence and power? What is it? Well, to answer that question, let's look at 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, beginning at verse 14. It says, and this is a very famous passage, probably many of you could quote it without ever even looking at it. If my people, who are called by my name, Will humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. What's going on here is in Second Chronicles chapter seven, this particular word from God comes to Solomon just after Solomon has been dedicating the temple, just completed the temple. And Solomon, on behalf of Israel, has been, has been pleading and praying to God. And asking God to be merciful and forgive Israel when she sins in the future. You realize there were seven, as if you go back and look at chapter 6, there were seven different petitions Solomon makes in regard to the ways, the different ways in which Israel would sin. And God's judgment, he, he, he talks about it coming as a result, falling, being defeated by their enemies, having severe famine, God being displeased with them, him pulling back, and, and them being in trouble. And in every single one of those, Solomon asks this. If, if we, your people, Israel, turn back to you, if we come to you and repent, Will you heal and will you forgive? And do you know what God's response? No matter how bad, no matter how far they get, no, no matter what it's like, do you know what God's re- response was? You do. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. That's what God's response is. If my people... So he promises them, yes, I will. If my people will humble themselves, seek my face and pray. And turn from their wicked ways. I will forgive and heal them. Absolutely. And why is this? You ever wonder? Why is this? Why would God do this? Well, I really think it comes down to understanding the nature of God. God cannot resist broken humility. (laughs) He runs to it. He just cannot stop himself. If he sees broken humility... He just doesn't stand far off. He runs to it. That's what he's like. Indeed, this is the common testimony throughout Scripture. In Psalm 34, verse 18, it says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. As we had heard this morning, David expressed this in his prayer in Psalm 51. And we all know that David ends up committing adultery and murder. And then David, what does David do? Do you realize what Psalm 51 is? David created and wrote that psalm for all of Israel to sing. Can you imagine a confession? You write your confession out so the nation could sing about it. Sometimes we think that, oh, look at David in his private life. Well, David sinned greatly, but David humbled himself greatly. He wrote a song so everybody could sing about it. And he says this. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God. You know what he says? You will not despise. There's just no way God will... God can't turn a blind eye toward broken and contrite hearts. It's what he delights in. Just listen to Isaiah 57, verse 15, which says, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite, Who is it that God loves to revive, to bring revival to? Who is it that God runs to? Even the high and exalted one, the holy one, you think, oh, he only comes to those who are high and mighty. He only comes to the high and lofty. No way. It's the broken, it's the contrite that he from heaven runs to and revives them. God, that's where God dwells. And you know, just in case we think that this is somehow just an Old Testament deal and not a new testament then there's james chapter 4 verses 6 through 10 which says god opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble submit yourself therefore to god resist the devil and he will flee for you draw near to god and he will draw near to you cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your hearts you double-minded be wretched and mourn and weep let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom why Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. So I began with a question. What is it that God cannot resist, I asked? What is it that he's eager to flood with his presence and power? The answer? Broken humility. So, okay. Okay, we, we know we're supposed to be humble and contrite, but the million-dollar question is this. How do you do that? <laughs> I get that. Uh, I understand that we're, that's what you're supposed to do. But we just can't sit here and say, okay, Dean, I get that, okay. Um, I'm going to be humble and contrite. Here it goes. Humble, contrite. Um, just give me a minute. It takes a while. Okay, it's not working. Give me some more time. Um, we know that doesn't work. We also, we can't go into our prayer closets and then close the door and say, okay, God, I want to be humble. Please make me humble and then just wait. And you find, man, what's going on? God, I've pr- I, I, I got to confess, I've prayed that thousands of times. Oh, God, make me humble. We can't even just come here week after week. And we start the service off and think, okay, if I get on my knees and if I have a prayer of confession, then I'll be humble. No, it doesn't work. So what do we do? Are we stuck? Wanting to obey God's commands? I want to be humble, but having no ability to do so? Kind of like a big trick by God. <laughs> be humble, and there's nothing you can do. It's just, I want to be humble before God, but I, you know, obviously there's nothing we can do. But I don't think that's the case. We can do something that would completely humble us and break our pride. And let me ask you, in light of that, let me ask you this. Would it humble you? Would it humble you to confess your sin to another person? You know, personally, I I find confessing sin to God way easier than confessing sin to someone else. I'll confess anything and everything to God. I'm not so sure about other people. You know, it's hard for me to confess my sin to my children. <laughs> that's incredibly difficult. Asking them to forgive me. Now, that that seems like that should be pretty easy, right? Well, that's terribly humbling. It's terribly humbling. When I think of... Uh, think even think of doing this i have numerous reasons i can think of them right like this why i don't need to i justify myself very quickly but in reality you know what it boils down to it boils down to one thing my pride i'm proud because it literally humbles me to confess any sin to them You know, this internal resistance of pride we have toward confessing our sin to others, it proves and it shows and exposes to us what exactly needs to be addressed and taken care of if we are to humble ourselves. There's pride, there's fear of man inside of us. Our pride and ego, they feel so much better when we simply justify our actions, make excuses why we don't have to do anything about it, and find reasons why we don't have to humble ourselves or confess to others. But here's something we need to understand. As long as you and I keep our pride and humility intact, we will not know... Did I say humility? I meant pride and ego as long as we keep our pride and ego intact, we will not know broken humility. And this is the dilemma we have. That's a serious dilemma. Because we think on the one hand, hey, do you want broken humility? Yeah, I want to be broken. I want broken, I want humility because I know that's what God runs to. But on the other hand, there's my pride and ego that says... Not on your life. Not a chance. And that's usually where we're stuck. There's no way I'm going to do that. But, oh yeah, God, on the other side of our mouths, we want broken humility. But understand something. Broken humility, is the, you only get that by tearing down your pride and your ego. That's the result. It's the other side of the same coin. You can't have broken humility without having your pride and ego crushed. It's impossible. And you know, this is, this is something we have to understand. There is something we can do to humble ourselves. And the answer is this. Confess your sin one to another. And this has been a big eye-opener for me. Because as I have come to understand the connection between crushing my pride and ego through this honest confession to others and how this creates a humility in us, maybe the truth is I really don't want to be humbled. (laughs) But then I have to remember that this is the only way because broken humility and contriteness... What does God do to that? That's what God rushes to. That's what God fills, it he heals and cleanses and shows up in power to. So could it be that we don't often experience the awesome presence of God's power and because we're more interested in protecting, covering, and hiding our sin than we are in exposing it? After all, we have reputations to maintain, right? We have our egos to protect. We have others to impress. We have worked our whole lives to give others the impression that we're worthy of their praise and that we have it all together. That's what we do. But what does God think? What does he think of those who are trying to protect their image? What does he think of those who are always trying to cover up? Well, as Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. There's so many passages in Proverbs that talk about the proud, and often we think of the proud as the arrogant and the puffed up who walk around cocky. And as long as we don't walk around cocky and puffed up, we're not proud. But just think of it for a moment. Think of it in this particular context. We know that if we were to confess our sins to someone else, that would be humbling. That would... You just almost can feel your pride saying, no, 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 not a chance. There's no way. So in light of all that I've said so far, let me ask you another question. What do you think, in light of what has been said, what do you think has been at the forefront of all the great revivals in church history? Well, the answer, public confession of sin, which, where there's broken humility. And there are plenty of uh, cases we could look at, but I will just give three Uh, One is more well-known, two are not so well-known. In the 1700s, America and Europe experienced what is known as the Great Awakening. And one of the central figures in all of this was a preacher by the name of John Wesley. And apart from all the preaching that took place, one of the more unknown things that was happening, people don't always see this or understand this, John Wesley did, uh, what he did was start these small groups which he called societies. And these societies had certain methods to them. And these methods uh, that they had as a part of these societies became known. This is how you got the name Methodists. They became known as the Methodists. The Methodist Church emerged from it, from all these small groups. Because these small groups had a particular method to them. So when they met, this is what they would follow. Here was the method they would basically answer five questions. Now, here are the five questions. Question one. What known sins have you committed since our last meeting? Question two. What temptations have you been met with? Question three. How are you delivered? Question four. What have you thought, said, or done of which you doubt whether it to be sin or not? Question five. Have you nothing you desire to keep secret? Wow. <laughs> when I read that, I was thinking, you got to be kidding me. I wouldn't be showing up to that group. <laughs> but those questions are pretty direct. And would certainly be humbling, obviously, if answered honestly. Because there's no room for ego or pride there, is there? It's pretty much, they're calling it to lay it on the line. And in that, in that environment, is there any wonder that the spirit showed up in power? That he was working mightily amongst them? Because if questions like these were answered sincerely, what would it do? Well, that's humbling. That breaks your ego and pride. It's going to greatly humble you. And what is God going to do when you're humbled? God is going to run to you, fill you, heal you, and lift you up. He brings blessing. My next example is far uh, less uh, known revival, but it has specific details. And if you as you listen as I read this this particular. Um, telling of it, listen to how important and fundamental in this story this humble confession and repentance is. Here's how it's described by one historian. In the early 1900s, a group of dedicated American missionaries had gone to a tough area of China, the Shantung province. It was a hard ministry and the missionaries had sacrificed greatly by by going to such a tough region. As they faithfully taught and preached God's word, the Chinese people showed almost no interest. So the missionaries redoubled their efforts. They prayed, witnessed, and preached as hard as they knew how. They were putting out enormous efforts to love and minister to the Chinese people. Yet, there was very little response. And it seemed as if the hearts of the people were made of stone. After many months, the missionaries became disheartened and began to ask God what was wrong. Despite all their hard work and activities, why was there such little spiritual power? God's answer surprised them. In essence, he said, there is hidden, unconfessed sin in your life, and you're not truly filled with the Holy Spirit. So the missionaries agreed to go separately to private prayer places and ask God to show them anything that might be quenching his spirit. Each missionary took the bible a pad and a pen to list their sins. They were then to fully confess and forsake their each sin. One of the missionaries was Bertha Smith, who sincerely thought she was close to God and expected to find um, and expected to find little to confess. She later stated that when she allowed God to search her, her life, she saw many things she had previously assumed were small and unimportant. Yet because of the small attitudes, she began to realize she had lost the fullness of the Holy Spirit. These little things were huge in the eyes of her God. Each missionary had the same experience. After a significant time of spiritual searching, the missionaries came together and confessed several things to one another. They then then prayed and asked God to fill them with the Holy Spirit. At once, something totally incredible began to happen. First, God poured out his spirit on the missionaries. They immediately sensed a joy and a power they had never known. The reality of God's manifest presence was overwhelming. There was absolutely no doubt that God had filled and empowered them in brand new ways. Second, their praying and preaching took on awesome new power. Third, God sent a flood of the Holy Spirit upon the entire region. Suddenly, the Chinese people were so unresponsive who are, so now un- who are so unresponsive, now flooded into the kingdom of God. Their cold hearts melted before the mighty conviction of God's Spirit. Frequently, the missionaries would be awakened in the middle of the night by people so under conviction they could not wait until morning to be saved. End quote. Now that's what happens when God's people humble themselves confess their sins, and repent, God shows up. God shows up and works powerfully among them. You know, any other activity, program, strategy, no matter how strategic or spiritual, is not going to cause God to move. It's not going to get him thinking, wow, these people are amazing. I don't care how slick, I don't care how diligent, how creative, or how much effort we put into it. If God is not with us, we're wasting our time. Because it will only be as we humble ourselves before God. In broken, contriteness before him, that he shows up with his power and presence. There's one last story I'd like to um, share with you. And because I think it shows the connection between the confession and repentance and God's ongoing presence. And not just, we don't think of revival as when God shows up in power and it's great and then it fades away. But this is something, this is a place where you can live and, and it can be a part of the culture. In 1938, revival broke out in Uganda, Africa. And apparently it has continued ever since. A leader within the church there by the name of Kifa Sampongi reported that the believers there have an unusual honesty in confessing sins, and as a consequence, the whole church has been filled with great joy. In practice, this means that a grim-faced brother may be stopped on the street and asked by his fellow Christians, My brother, have you confessed your sins today? Have you seen the cross of Christ today? According to Kepha, believers are expected to see the cross when they confess their sins and leave their burdens there. And what happens as a result of this culture? What happens as a result of them living like this? Well, God's special presence and power has been with them to this day. And continues to do great things amongst them. And why is that? Because the condition of their hearts, they live at a place where broken humility and the culture there is one to stay there, not just to think that, wow, we had it, this was great, let's ride it. You know, if you look, too, if you look at the the story of so many revivals throughout church history, you'll see that God shows up mightily in power, and then then you wonder, what happened? Why did it kind of drift away and and seem to fade away, and then all of a sudden, nothing be there anymore? Well, it's typically because their hearts grow cold and indifferent. They become apathetic. And no longer, everybody starts to live more and more private, individualistic lives that don't have to do with one another. There's no longer this openness, this confession of sin before one another. So there's a broken humility and repentance. And as a result, people don't even notice. Hey, wait a second. Has anybody noticed God's not here? Never thought of it. As the author of the book... What's your secret? Said, our tendency is to withhold information so we don't look quite so bad. We have an image to uphold and a reputation to maintain. So we try to keep our image intact and still let people into our lives. That's a win-win, right? Wrong. He goes on to say, in his book 7, The Deadly Sins and the Beatitudes, author Jeff Cook wrote, every story about a fall from grace is first a story about privacy. Every story about a dramatic restoration of character is first a story of exposure. So as long as we're trying to save face and protect our image in front of others... We don't experience the humility and brokenness that causes God to run to us, cleanse us, heal us, and fill us. But I have to be honest with you. Even in preparing this and going through this, it scares me to death, thinking, I don't want to do this. I don't want to confess to you. You know why? I'm afraid of what you think of me. But that alone, even as I wrestle with it, exposes in me deep-seated pride and fear of men. And I know the more I look at it, that needs to be put to death. Because let's be honest, as I look at it, it begins to prove that I'm more concerned about my reputation before you than I am about my humility before God. I've spent my life building protective walls, putting on a look, an image, and a style to attract others to me. And so when I think of confession, it feels like I'm going to be tearing down what I've spent my whole life building up. But you know what makes me willing to step forward? I want more of God and less of me. And I think I'm coming to hate my pride. I want it smashed. I feel like I'm beginning to become tired of the facades and the playing of games. But I don't just want to say that anymore. I kind of want to do something about it. The question is, where are you at? Do you want God more and you less? More of God, less of you? Do you want the fullness of his presence? Do you want God to show up in power? If you do... You must be willing to die so that you might live. You must be willing to trample underfoot your pride and be humbled. You must be willing to take up your cross and follow Jesus. But when you do, you will never be disappointed. Because that is what God loves. And I'm convinced that he will run to us, heal us, fill us, and lift us up. Because we know God humbles the proud, but exalts the humble. I want to be humble, but I don't like the road to humility. And I don't think any of you will like it either. But that's the point. It breaks us. So may all of us truly want more of God and less of ourselves and be willing to step forward like this. Amen. Father. Father you know our hearts, you know our minds, you know where we're at at this very moment. You know our pride way better than we do. You know our fear of man way better than you than we do. Father, have mercy on us and help us to see our sins. And make us more willing to be humbled and broken than we are trying to save face. May we give ourselves more to humility and brokenness. And much less to our pride and ego. And may you work in the hearts of these people helping us to see and understand that we truly must be willing to break our pride. Step forward and confess our sins so that you might heal, lift up, and make us new. Amen.